Okay, good morning, everybody. Let's open up in a word of prayer this morning, and we can get into our study in Daniel. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have once again to be here, uh, to study together, to worship together, Lord, to fellowship together as a body of believers. We thank you for our time. We thank you, Lord, for the things that you've given us and the this, just this opportunity, and pray, Lord, that you would be with us as we look into your word, as we look into the book of Daniel. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand these events that will take place uh, in a time that is yet future to us, and pray, Lord, that you would help us to, Lord, just, just use them to honor you and to bring glory to you, Lord, and to, uh, Lord, just understand what your plans are for the future. We thank you, Lord, again, and we just pray, Lord, uh, that this would be a time that would honor you. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, turn with me once again this week to the ninth chapter of Daniel, where we've been studying the 70 weeks of Daniel. I will admit, uh, we've been waking, making our way slowly through this portion of Scripture, and I realize that sometimes when you do that, it is easy to miss the forest because of the trees, so to speak, uh, when it takes so long to go through such a passage like this. Um, so we will spend a little bit of time here initially recapping some of the highlights that we've seen so far in these verses. Really, it's the last four verses of Daniel 9 that are the, um, the highlights, the, 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 what we've been focusing on. Uh, so let's just read verses 24. Uh, we'll start in verse 24. As the angel Gabriel has come to reveal to Daniel the word of the Lord concerning the future for Israel where he says, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So here we see that God had decreed or determined that he was going to finish his plan with the nation of Israel in 70 weeks, 70 sevens of years, or 490 years. At the end of that time, there would be six things here that he says that had occurred. The transgression will be finished, sin will be ended, iniquity will be atoned for, everlasting righteousness will have been brought in, vision and prophecy will be sealed up, and the most holy place will be anointed. These six things will be true on the earth, and most specifically for the nation of Israel, as he's directing this uh, towards their attention. These are six things that are not true today, and have never been true in the history of the world. You can't look at these things and say, oh, this occurred back at this point in time, because all these things um, are not taking place today. So as Daniel was praying to the Lord, he was simply looking forward to God restoring the nation of Israel back to a position of blessing on earth, just as he has done in years past. But this time, Gabriel is delivering a different message to him, an important message that has to do with the final state of things. Daniel is just thinking he's talking about a, the next restoration in, in Israel's cycle, uh, but God is delivering something grander to him. Um, something that has to do with the kingdom that God is going to establish on the earth uh, one day. So that's what these six things here are referring to. The day when sin no longer plays a prominent role and when righteousness reigns on the earth. The day when God will dwell among his children. 
And he alone will be the absolute center of worship and glory. The day when sins will be covered and man is made right with God again. This is the kingdom of God that Gabriel has come to tell Daniel about, to give him the prophecy uh, that points the way to. And in the following verses, he explains what must happen in that 490 years to lead the nation there, what things are going to take place along the way. So if you look at verse 25, it said, So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So there's going to be a 70-week or 490-year runway that leads, to, leads the nation to the kingdom. But these 70 weeks are going to be dealt with in three distinct parts. They are broken down into a, into a division of seven weeks and 62 weeks and then one week. In verse 25, we see the seven and the 62, and they are marked out by two distinct events. It says, first of all, the weeks start with the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And in our study of that section a couple weeks ago, we made note that the decree was issued by the Persian king Artaxerxes in 444 B.C., And that was seen in Nehemiah chapter 2. This decree was unique because it was the only decree that was about rebuilding the city and not just the temple, which is indicated here. During the first seven weeks, or that 49-year period, the city would be completed with plaza and moat, it says, inside and out. It will be a complete restoration of the city. And the city was finally finished right around 395 B.C., And then the end of the next 62 weeks, which is really the end of the 7 plus 62 weeks, so the 69th week, would be marked by the presentation of Messiah the King. And we won't take the time to do it again, but we noted that if you calculate out the days that are in the 483 prophetical years, and you trace those days from the decree of Artaxerxes forward, you come to the day of the triumphal entry. When Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey, and the crowd shouted out in John 12, 13, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The day in the week before his crucifixion, when he came into the city presented as king. But then we read what happened after that day, after the end of the 69th week, verse 26 starts off that says, then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. The Messiah, the one who rode into the city, presented as king, who was heralded by his own people at the beginning of the Passion Week, Gabriel says, will be cut off and have nothing. And we looked last time at what that meant. We see uh, see foreshadowing of this in John's gospel in John 1, 10 and 11 where it says he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. He came into the world, the world that he had created and it didn't know him. But even worse than that, he came to his own people. He came to the nation of Israel, to those who had been given every advantage, and they did not receive him. They rejected him. He was handed over to be killed, and he did not receive his kingdom. He did not rule over his people. 
And then Gabriel went on to mention several events in the rest of verse 26. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And that brought us to the time period that took place after the Messiah is cut off, but before the events of the 70th and final week in the prophecy. So, okay, we're still working through that, so... Um, but if you remember the slide, yeah, that, the little slide there. Um, Gabriel here reveals events in verse 26 that occurs in the gap in time. Um, after the Messiah is cut off, but before that last week comes in. We talked about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD uh, at the hands of the Romans who stormed the city of Jerusalem like a flood, who besieged it and caused massive destruction on the city and on the people. We talked about the meaning behind the war and the desolations the, uh, that match up with what Jesus told the disciples in Matthew chapter 24 and about times of distress that will occur for Israel. What Daniel didn't know and what Gabriel didn't explain, and Gabriel most likely didn't know this either, was that these events would take place within this gap. If you can see the, you can see the gap, here's the gap. Right there. So, I don't know, that's a little small, but... Uh. So these play, things take place within the gap. Um, the time period where God had turned aside from his people in order to focus on the Gentile nations to focus on the church. So we are in the gap right now. The gap is going on right now. Now, there are many people who don't recognize the gap. There are many people who say that there is no gap. Um, they would say that the 70th week must immediately follow after the 69th week and that there is no gap. But we looked last time at what Paul had to say about it in Romans 9 through 11. And as Gentiles, we have uh, received the benefit, the blessing of this gap, this period of time, because within this time we have the church age, the time of the fullness of the Gentiles, which will culminate with the rapture of the church. Oh, you can see the rapture right there. So we're, we're having technical difficulties. We're, we're bearing with it all, so we're, we're good. Thank you guys for working on this. So we've received benefits of that. The time of the fullness of the Gentiles culminating with the rapture of the church. One day when Christ will return in the clouds with a trumpet and a shout and the voice of the archangel and we will be taken up to meet him in the air. So that's where we are. This mystery time that Israel didn't know about but it's one that has to take place before the events of the 70th week of Daniel can be completed. And so that brings us up to the last verse in this prophecy and in the chapter, where we finally get to see what Gabriel tells Daniel about this 70th and final week. So look with me at verse 27, where it says, And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. And so here is the beginning of the end. What will mark it out? The last week, number 70, that's the one week that we have in view here. Now, we have a he that we have to define, right? He will make a firm covenant with the one week, and it's the same he that was defined last time because it was his people 
who destroyed the temple in 70 AD, the event we talked about in verse 26. This is the Antichrist that's in view here. The false Messiah who will oppose God and cause such misery and destruction upon the people of God during the time of the tribulation. And keep in mind, that's exactly what this week is. The 70th week of Daniel is the tribulation week. They're one and the same. So we have the people of Antichrist destroying the temple, and then we have the Antichrist coming onto the scene at the beginning of this final week. Now, how does that fit together? Because if you look, we have that gap, right? You've got most of these events that we looked at before occurring right around here, and then the one week is clear over here. And we know that this age is at least around 2,000 years, right? Because we've been in it for about that long. So how does that fit together? So the temple was almost destroyed 2,000 years ago. Rome is gone, at least, right? When you look around today, you see Rome was not a world power. We know that it was the Romans that destroyed the temple. Rome is not a world power today, so how does this fit? Well, if you have to remember back to our discussions before in chapters 2 and chapter 7 and even a little bit in chapter 8, the Roman Empire will be revived. The ten horns will rise up, the little horn will subdue three of them and assume power. In all of those previous chapters, we had the same issue, and that was all explained by this same gap in time. Daniel saw no break in this time. When, when Gabriel's presenting this to Daniel, he's, they're not talking about the gap, right? Gabriel's just presenting it as this is what will happen, these are the pieces that will happen to Israel in their future. So this wasn't revealed to Daniel, but we know about this break in time because we're in it. We are living in it. It doesn't contradict what Daniel saw. It just adds a dimension that he wasn't aware of. But we know that all that he saw that was revealed to him will come to pass just as it was revealed to him. So somehow Rome will be revived, and now the Antichrist comes on the scene. What will he do? Well, it says, he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. The many here are the people of Daniel. Remember, they are who this prophetic time is for. They are the ones that are in view here that Gabriel is telling Daniel this for. And it will be a seven-year covenant. It will cover a seven-year period of time, one week or one of the sevens that we're talking about. So he will come on the scene, rise to power in the world, and the nation of Israel will hear from this man that he will give them peace. And they will believe him, right? The guy comes in offering peace to them, and they will accept it. Now, why would this be tempting to them? Why would this even be necessary? Well, it's because of many of the events that come upon them leading up to this man coming on the scene. These are the things that are all being set up today. And you can see that throughout their history, even with the way that Israel exists today. In 1914, 90,000 Jews came back to the land of Israel and established residence in the land. They had, by and large, been gone from that portion of land prior to that time. By 1948, they were officially recognized as a nation once again. Today, there are over 6 million Jews living there in an 8,000-square-mile area of land. 
for comparison purposes, because I think of these things, so I'm assuming you think of these things, but for comparison purposes, Nebraska is about 77,000 square miles. Um, So it's about a tenth of the size of Nebraska. And you can see or read in the news that the world hangs on every little thing that goes on in that small space of land. Even by the world's standards, Israel is an extremely important, tiny country. There's a lot of focus that goes on in Israel. Now, based on the events, uh, when we read through parts of Matthew chapter 24, we know that while they are back in the land, they are not living in peace. They have enemies all around them, and they have suffered great atrocities at many points in their history. So that's why at some point, maybe soon, I'm not going to give a date, when someone approaches them and convinces them of a seven-year peace plan, they will accept it. It will be like a breath of fresh air for them. And they will be tired of the wars and the rumors of wars that have been going on around them. So this treaty or covenant that is, um, is what is going to kick off this final week in their history and start the clock ticking down to the coming of Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom. Now some may ask, why is this period called a seven-year tribulation if it's going to be characterized by a peace treaty? Well, we see that as we continue on in the verse because while it will start with a peace treaty, it will not be characterized by peace. Look at what comes next. It says, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. In the middle of the week, he will break the covenant. Now, the middle of the week, how long is that? Again, our diagram does a good job of showing, right? Seven years, three and a half years. So three and a half years in is the middle of the week. Now, if you remember back... Um, When we read in Daniel chapter 7, we even looked at this last week, but if you turn back a couple pages, Daniel 7.25, we read there, and he will speak out against, and that he is the Antichrist, and he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So there again, we see this time period, a time, times, and half a time. One time, two times, and a half a time, three and a half times. The Antichrist will be given authority over the saints, the chosen ones of God, for three and a half times or three and a half years. This is referring to the events in that second half of the week of the tribulation, which is what the diagram up there shows. Now turn with me over to the book of Revelation, and we'll look at Revelation chapter 12. We see this same time frame talked about in Revelation. And we've seen some of this before in our previous studies. I don't mind taking you to the same place more than once, because I think it helps, helps to solidify things. It helps me solidify things, so I hope it helps you to solidify things. But we've looked at this before. Here we're talking about the woman who is Israel, and the one who had the male child, um, the Messiah. Look at verse 1 of Revelation 12, where it says, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. 
And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. So here we have this woman, right? And we talked about her back when we were studying through Daniel chapter 7, talking about the stars in heaven representing Israel. And she has 12 stars on her head, which represent 12 tribes. And she's in labor, and she's about to give birth. Now, who does Israel give birth to? Look down at verse 5. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Who is this child? This is Jesus, right? This is the Messiah, the one who will come to claim his kingdom, who will someday rule his kingdom with a rod of iron. But after she gives birth to him, he is caught up to heaven. So what happens to her? Well, look at verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that she would be nourished for 1,260 days. So the woman has to flee, right? She's under great persecution, and we didn't read it, but verses 3 to 4 talk about the red dragon, Satan, standing opposed to the woman um, and, and seeking to devour her son. And so after the Messiah is taken up, there's a period of time where she needs a safe place. But notice the length of time. It says that she will have to flee into the wilderness and the length of time in which she will need safety. 1,260 days. Now, how long is that? I don't, I'm going to make you think about math again here this morning. Well, if you use a 360-day prophetical year calendar, which is what we use throughout Scripture, this comes out to three and a half years. That's our same time frame. This is the same event that's in, that's in view here. Now flip over a page to chapter 13, where we see power and authority given to the beast. And, and who's the beast? The beast is the Antichrist, right? Same guy that we're seeing making a treaty with Israel um, for a week in Daniel chapter 9. So Revelation 13 is the Antichrist being established, but look with me at what it says down in verse 5. It says a lot of things about the Antichrist here, but I just want you to see once again this time span. Verse 5 of Revelation 13, There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Now, we keep going back and forth with days, months, years, right? But 42 months is the time frame that we see here. We see how long he was given to act, and this would be to act against the people of God and even against the whole world. Satan and the Antichrist are given almost unlimited reign upon the earth during this period of time. But again, he's given authority and power for 42 months. How long is 42 months? Three and a half years, right? 12 years, 12 years, 12 years, 36 plus 6, 42 months. And this, again, is that second half of the tribulation. This is the time of great wrath upon the earth. So it really can't be any clearer. In all of these, we're talking about the same person, the same time frame, and the same events. So come back with me to Daniel 9. When we get to that halfway point in that last week, and he has, he has made this treaty, he has made this covenant with Israel, we get halfway through it, and what happens? What does he do when he breaks the covenant? It says he stops the sacrifice 
and the grain offering. Now, what does this show us? If he's stopping the sacrifice and he's stopping a grain offering, what does this show us? This shows us at this point in time, the temple is operational again. The temple is back in use. Because there are no sacrifices and there's no grain offerings unless there is a temple to have them in. So after its destruction, it apparently is once again rebuilt. Right? So if you're keeping score with what happens with the temple here, in Daniel's day, as Gabriel's talking to him, as he's receiving this prophecy, the temple lays in ruins. The temple's been destroyed. Right? It's not operational. When Jerusalem is rebuilt, and that occurs at the end of the first seven-week period, the temple and the city are rebuilt. So now the temple is back in, in action at the end of that time. Now, after the 62 weeks, when Messiah is cut off, in 70 AD, the temple is again destroyed. So then the temple's laying in ruins. Now we go through the entire church age, church age gap there, and even today, they cannot occupy the temple mount because right, there's no temple yet. So there's still no temple there. But at the time of the 70th week, sacrifices are back. The temple has been rebuilt once again. So there's a lot of starting or stopping and starting here with regards to the temple. But at this time, what will this man do? How will he stop the sacrifices? Well, easy. He's going to set himself up as God in the temple. It's going to be a temple to him. How do we know that? Well, Paul makes mention of this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So go ahead and turn over with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In 2 Thessalonians 2, the Thessalonians, and part of the book, part of the reason Paul writes this letter, is that the Thessalonians are concerned that they have, may have missed the day of the Lord, that perhaps Christ had returned, the kingdom had come, and they had missed it. In fact, there's, it's most likely that somebody had written a, a letter to them claiming to be Paul that said that it had already happened. So Paul writes to reassure them. So if you look at verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians 2, he says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So here Paul is assuring them that for the day of the Lord to come, for the Lord to return, there has to be a couple of things that happen first. The first thing is the coming of the apostasy or departure. And then the man of lawlessness is revealed is the second thing. And the man of lawlessness is the person we're talking about. This is the Antichrist. What will he do? He will exalt himself to the point where he will seat himself as God in the temple. Not just in a prominent position, but as the object of worship. So it's not like he just puts himself over to the side and says, I'm, I'm important too. No, he is now the object of worship in the temple. He will declare himself to be God, very similar to what we've seen from other rulers, right? When we looked at Nebuchadnezzar, what did he do? He, he builds a statue to himself for people to worship. Darius, right, says, nobody can bow down to any other god but me for 
30 days, right? Antiochus Epiphanes, right, sets himself up and, and changes uh, the way that the temple is used. All men, rulers, that set themselves up as being gods. Now here we see the Antichrist get in on the act as well, but he takes it to an entirely new degree, right? He, this one goes to 11, if you're familiar with that phrase. Turn back to Daniel chapter 9. What does Gabriel say next? It says, And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. On the wing of abominations, the phrase that's used there. The overspreading of abominations, or really the overabundance of abominations. There is no one in the history of the world who will have more gall, who will have more arrogance, and be filled with more blasphemy than the man of lawlessness, the prince who is to come, the one who makes desolate. Flip over with me again to Matthew chapter 24. And as we look a little bit more at what Jesus has to say about this time, and again, I know we're going to get to Matthew 24 in a, in a few weeks. I promise I'm not trying to steal Josh's thunder. Um, but this stuff just all fits together, and we'll see it here in this passage that we'll read. But look down at verse 15 in Matthew 24, where it says, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So here's Jesus talking about this as well, even referring to Daniel's prophecy, right? When the abomination of desolation which is either the Antichrist himself or an idol that he sets up of himself in the temple. When you see that standing in the temple, that is the signal for the end. The signal that things have gone from very bad to extremely worse. And look how bad it gets in verse 17. It says, Let him who was on the housetop not go down to get the things that are in his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who nurse babes in those days. But pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. That's pretty bad. Right? This is how bad it's going to get. The worst event that will ever occur in the history of the world. This is the event that, by the way, we just saw in Revelation 12 as well, where the woman, Israel, will flee into the wilderness and have to be protected by God. There will be so much chaos, there will be so much destruction, so much tribulation during this period of time, that if God didn't cut it down to just three and a half years, the entire world would have been consumed. It has to be limited in time or else no one would survive it. This will be the ultimate trial that Israel will have to go through. The final punishment, the end of God's discipline on his chosen nation. And God will bring it to an end. If you're not there already, turn back to Daniel 9 again. Look with me at the last part 
uh, verse 27. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. At the end of the final week, the Antichrist rule and his abominations will finally be brought to an end. Right? If you think about it, seven years is not that long of a period. I mean, of course, if you're going through it, it feels like a long period of time. But in the history of the world, seven years is not a very long period of time. But it will be the worst period of time the world has ever seen. But at the end of that week, the Antichrist will be brought to an end. Throughout history, God has often used wicked men or wicked nations in his plans. But he never allowed their wickedness to go unpunished. You look at people like the Assyrians, even the Babylonians, which we're studying in Daniel, Cyrus the Persian, Antiochus Epiphanes, all men or nations of men who played a part in God's sovereign plans for the discipline, the punishment of his people. And yet, they all got what they deserved when their time was over. The Antichrist will be no different in that respect. He may have more power, he will have more authority over more of the world, but his end will be the same. And this is clearly seen, if you flip a couple pages back in Daniel 7 again, and here it was described short and sweet in verse 21 of Daniel 7, where it said, I kept looking and that horn, and that was the little horn, the Antichrist, was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the Ancient of Days came and the judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Now, in here, it's short and sweet. No muss, no fuss, right? He's waging war. He's overpowering the saints until the coming of the Lord. Until the time when the Father sets forth the judgment on the beast and he's overthrown. Then it's done. It's just it doesn't talk about any details. Look down at verse 26. It says, But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. That's, once again, the beast being referred to here. And he will be annihilated and destroyed forever. Now, we may think, well, surely it's going to be more grandiose and dramatic than that, right? It's like, okay, this, this refers to it real short and sweet. But this has got to be a battle for the ages, right? This is setting up for, the show time, for, for a showdown, right? I mean, we've all seen movies. We know how this works, right? You, you have the, the build-up to the very end, and then you have the huge battle scene at the end. Well, turn with me over to the book of Revelation. This time we'll go to Revelation 19. And I think we've been here before, too, probably back when we were in chapter 7. But that was a long time ago, so... Revelation 19, we have the end of the Antichrist and his great opposition to God on earth. Look down with me at verse 19, where we see the armies of the world assembled to make war against Christ at his second coming. And here it is, verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So, here they are. They're all prepared for battle, right? And earlier in the chapter, it talks about Christ on his horse descending from heaven along with all of the saints coming to meet them for this battle. 
All right, so here they are. They're all prepared for war. And again, if you're, look, if you're making a movie out of this, you've got this, this huge scene with all the horses and all the weapons of war sitting there on a field ready for the enemy to come. Now verse 20 to 21, here's the battle. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Again, there's no question as to the outcome of this battle. This is Christ returning to earth and wiping them out. The Antichrist, having served his purpose, as did the Babylonians, as did the Assyrians before them, he's done. He's just done. Finished. This is the judgment of God. This isn't a grand battle scene. This is Christ coming in and taking the Antichrist out and taking his enemies out. This is the judgment of God. But it will not take place until the nation of Israel has gone through this 70th week. And that is what the nation will have to go through someday. And it's not a pretty picture, but it's a pretty complete picture. That's the end of the week, the end of the 70 weeks, but it's not the end of Israel because we saw that back in verse 24. After this point, after the week is over and the beast is destroyed, then is the coming of the kingdom, the establishment of the kingdom on earth. And everything will be taken care of at that time. Sin has been covered. The nation will belong to the Lord He will be sitting upon the throne on earth, and righteousness will reign forever. What a marvelous and glorious time that we have to look forward to, that that is coming at the end of this point in time. And you know what? You now know what's going to happen at the end of the world, and you know how it's going to occur. And when I say the end of the world, I mean the end of the world as we know it, right? Obviously, we're going to continue on in glory for, for eternity. But this is a pretty cool thought. But the question is, what do we do with this knowledge? Now that we know this, what do we do with it, right? When we think about prophecy, when we think about things that are coming at the end of the... Some people have the attitude, well, it's it's nice to know, it's, it's good to listen to, but does that affect me today? Well, it does affect us today. Peter tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, turn, turn with me to 2 Peter 3. We'll, I think we'll end with this today. I had some other stuff I wanted to talk about, but I think for time we'll probably just end with this. Peter's talking about the future state, the things that God is bringing about in the future, just like we've been talking about. If you look at 2 Peter 3, verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. Verse 13, But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells, right? That sounds familiar, right? In which righteousness dwells. You know what he's talking about here, about a state in which righteousness dwells. This is the kingdom. This is the eternal kingdom. And this is where we will be someday 
as well. Now look at verse 14. And here's where these types of things apply to us today and what we need to keep in mind. Therefore, Peter says, Beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. Knowing what God's plans are for the future ought to affect the way in which we live today. What type of people ought we to be now as we look forward to the plans that God has for the future? We ought to be spotless. We ought to be blameless. We ought to be diligent to be found by him in peace, he says here. Regarding the Lord's patience to be salvation. This is how we ought to live today. Living lives that glorify him, living lives that are in obedience to him, living holy lives, realizing that every day that comes, every day that we have where the rapture doesn't take us, where, the, where God has not finished his plan, is another day that we have to spread the gospel, the good news that will bring others to that same eternal kingdom that we look forward to someday as we present to them the gospel that has the power to bring them salvation. That's what we ought to get out of a message like this one here in Daniel, and that's how a message like this ought to affect our lives every day. Now, like I said, I had some other things I was going to say. I don't know that we've got time to go through them, so I may cover that later. I will say a couple of people have asked me about the rapture and about whether or not we would get to that in this section. Obviously, we did not. Um, but a lot of that has, is because the rapture, you know, okay, we're not up there. Um, the rapture is something that occurs for the church. And primarily, this prophecy here is meant for Israel. So Israel, is the rapture will take place before that. Now, I know some people had some questions on that, so I am contemplating, I'm not promising anything, but I'm contemplating maybe just doing a lesson on the rapture at some point in the future, either between, between chapters maybe sometime or maybe as a prologue to Daniel overall. So anyway, what's that? I second the motion. Okay, all right. So anyway, um, so we'll look, look for that maybe sometime in the future. And, and if that doesn't come about, if anybody does have more questions, we can talk about it. Maybe we can set something up on the side too to, for anybody that's interested in something like that. So anyway, let's uh, close in a word of prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you and we thank you, Lord, for Daniel. We thank you for the prophecies that we see here. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you used this man um, in his life and just his faithfulness, Lord. And we thank you, for, we, we thank you Lord, for um, just the things that you have revealed to us through him. And Lord, we just give you praise for the things that we know that are coming in the future. We thank you, Lord, for that, what that means for us today as we know, Lord, that there is a plan in the future. We know, Lord, that the plan uh, for us as the church um, means that we will be with you in glory for eternity. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for just the way that you have worked all these things out and, and are working them out, Lord. And we just pray that we would have patience, pray that we would just be anxiously anticipating uh, the things that you have in store for us, Lord. And in the meantime, as we're here on earth, as we have each and every day, Lord, um, that we have not been taken to be with you, just pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to you in presenting the gospel. Pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to you in, in, in sharing uh, the good news 
uh, with those around us that need it, Lord. There are so many around us each and every day that are in desperate need of the gospel and of salvation, and we just pray, Lord, that we would be faithful in presenting that to them. I thank you, Lord, for our time here. Just pray, Lord, that you'd continue to uh, bless us as we uh, finish uh, the last few chapters in Daniel, and pray, Lord, that it would be a time that would bring glory and honor to you. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.